Because at the state house level, Republicans are expelling any Republicans who don't want to promote the possibility of stealing the next election. That's the real danger in 2022 and in 2024, that at the state level, the election will be overthrown in key states. That's happening. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My three guests today, Todd Gitlin, Jeff Isaac, and Bill Crystal recently put together an open letter in defense of democracy that was published simultaneously in The New Republic and The Bulwark. It should be shocking that such a letter is necessary. I wanted to talk to them about how and why they wrote it. They are somewhat strange political bedfellows, but I'm glad they found chemistry together. Todd Gitlin is a professor at Columbia with a history of leadership on the left. You can listen to my full interview with him from a year ago at episode 519. Jeff is a professor at Indiana who writes a lot against Trump. I have a full interview with him at episode 455. And Bill is on the show for the first time. You've probably seen him on television. For the past few years, he's been working hard with the never Trump Republicans in defense of our democracy. I enjoyed the conversation and think you'll find it well worth the listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Todd Gitlin, Jeff Isaac, and Bill Crystal. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. You told me this group had a lot of chemistry and I can see it now. <laughs> so two of you, Jeff and Todd, have been on the podcast before in a full length episode where we've gone over your biography and Bill is a fairly well-known person, but could you each give me just a quick introduction to who you are and why it's relevant to the open letter that we're going to discuss? Maybe in the order that I can see on the screen, Jeff. Bill Todd. Hi, I'm Jeff Isaac. I teach political science at Indiana University, where I've been for teaching for the past 33 years. And I write a lot about politics and I care about democracy. I've been writing obsessively about, about Trumpism since before Trump was elected. Todd, in fact, wrote a very kind blurb for a, a book of mine called Against Trump, which maybe around 14 people have read. But a very important 14, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. <laughs> One of them is Todd. <laughs> Bill, who are you? Uh, Bill Crystal. I um, was once a political student of political philosophy, like Jeff and uh, Todd, I guess. Uh, I got a PhD from Harvard and taught at Penn and Harvard, and then came to Washington in 1985 to serve in the Reagan administration. And like many people who come to Washington, came for a year, then a second year, you know, and then, of course, it's 35 years later, and I'm, we're still here. And, our kids grew up here or outside Washington. 
So I went into the government for about seven years, Reagan and George H.W. Bush administration, did a little politics, started the Weekly Standard magazine in 95, a conservative magazine that was edited for 20 years, that was closed down for being anti-Trump at the end of 2018. And I'm now an editor-at-large at The Bulwark, a, a website of sort of never-Trump, sort of conservatives, sort of ex-conservatives, whatever, and uh, involved in the Defending Democracy Together, which is a organization trying to defend and promote various aspects of liberal democracy, especially in reaction to the Republican Party today, but but also within the Democratic Party. Bill, I had one question for you. Um, there was reporting in the Woodward book that Dan Quayle, who used to be chief of staff to, was called by the by Vice President Pence to see if there's any way around him having to certify the election. And since that's sort of central to what we're talking about, I just wondered if you, in any way you found yourself in that loop. I, I believe that's correct, what Woodward reported, but I was not in the loop in real time, no. Got it. Todd, who are you? Bill Crystal. I just want to say Bill Crystal used to hang out with, with, with Quayle. Now he hangs out with me and Todd. <laughs> He's moved up in the Decline of the West, you know? <laughs> um, I'm Todd Gitlin. Once upon a time, I was the third president of an organization called Students for Democratic Society. I'm no longer a student, but I am still for a democratic society that proved to be much more tortuous to try to get close to it. I teach at Columbia University. I teach in uh, an interdisciplinary PhD program in communications, also American studies, sociology, journalism. I've written a bunch of books about politics and other things. And I'm, what shall I say, galvanized by the emergency that we've been in for uh, what seems like my entire life. <laughs> Uh, so you guys put together an open letter in defense of democracy, which was published both in The Bulwark and in The New Republic. Whose idea was this? I would say that it emerged from our conversations. We just started talking. Like Todd and I have known each other for years. Bill and I got to know each other a little. We met at a conference in 2018. And then we've been talking uh, about, you know, like uh, the emergency, what Todd described as the emergency. Then we started Zooming every week and liking each other and talking. And then we started talking about what we might do, and we came up with this idea. I don't remember who actually first came up with the idea, but I would say it emerged from our conversations. How did you put it together? Who wrote a draft? What was the, the stew of putting this open letter together? Um, you really want to go nitty gritty. I do. Okay. We, got, we, uh, we have Jeff, that long form journalism here, you know. Okay. Jeff wrote the draft, which was elegantly uh, succinct. And it was a good thing because one can go on and on. Uh, but he cut right to the heart of the matter uh, by saying at first, we who imagine we'll be signing this letter have been uh, adversaries on various matters. And we hope to continue to have lives as adversaries. But we're in a state of emergency. And I don't know if you use this phrase, but it's a time for all hands on deck. The matter is very simple. Democratic norms are threatened, democratic procedures are threatened, and even more than we originally understood, the capacity for the vote to be tallied accurately and fairly is also jeopardized. So let's get going. That's the essence of it. it it's not much longer than that. Did it take any level of compromise? Usually when you have multiple authors of something, 
or co-authors, you have to, I don't know, water it down or appease people or take out some of the hardest hitting parts? I would say not. I would say not. And, as you know, I did, I did write the original draft. And Todd really is really good and focused on the message here, you know, but the process is also important. And from my vantage point, the process was like seamless. We collaborated. Todd commented on the draft, then Bill commented on Todd's comments, and we ironed this out. And there was, I don't think there was any real disagreement about anything. I would say we worked this out in record time. I mean, I've been part of many such efforts over the years. It, this has been the smoothest, the most seamless I've ever been involved in. Yeah, these things, of course, are harder when you do them. Uh, a, I mean, I think it was because it was more intellectual or academic and you know, at a certain level of generality. And since we're all agreed on democracy and the threats to democracy right now, we didn't have to get into every, you know, detail of where we disagree. And we just stipulated that we have on many issues. Uh, I've always found like doing joint things with people who are closer to you ideologically is harder, actually, because then you, of course, end up, this is the famous truth of politics, right? And of life in general, the narcissism of small differences and all that. And so, you know, you, you end up arguing much more with people who are one notch away from you, whereas in a certain way, this was such a broad uh, uh, umbrella, if you want, or, you know, a statement but a serious one, I think. And and the idea was to get everyone, lots of people to sign on from different backgrounds, which I think led Jeff to write the first draft. And then Todd and I sort of made our, you know, tinkered a bit, but, you know, in a general power, I hope powerful, but general way that didn't, wasn't uh, sectarian, so to speak, which I think is a good model. Yeah, I've been involved in a million of these letters too. And this was one of the easiest just in terms of, I'd say in two ways, we all tinkered a bit and made editorial suggestions and discussed it really just a couple of times, I'd say, in, you know, in a matter of more minutes than hours, really, and got it f finalized. And then I found, I don't know what you guys uh, ex experienced, but getting people to sign was easy. I mean, there are a couple of people who didn't for various reasons. They don't sign letters or a couple of people had hesitations. But again, having been through this a few times, no arm twisting at all, no pleading at all. I just sent an email to the 15 or so, you know, more or less conservative-ish types who we wanted to sign. And I don't know, 10 or 12 of them signed, you know. You know, I think obviously the situation kind of requires this for a lot of people. So it's partly that the real crisis that we're in and the obviousness of it to a broad range of people, including us. I just want to say, uh, we don't have to dwell on this. The process of this has been extraordinary. And, you know, I think when we first started talking, we didn't know that we would do this and that we would bring so many people onto it so quickly. The truth of the matter is, you know, Bill has had a very different history than my history or Todd's history. There's no reason why we should even have imagined that we become friends. I think we have become friends. And, and so it's not just, I think, the emergency, but the manner in which we have collaborated. And hopefully we'll be able to bring other people into that. Let me add a historical note. This has been close to the top of my mind for many months, if not years now. And I won't presume to guess that it's also true for Jeff and Bill, but I imagine it is. I know a fair amount about the history of how Weimar Germany fell apart and became Hitler's Germany. And I know enough to know that it was not inevitable that Hitler would triumph but that it was instrumental to his triumph that those who understood his poisonousness were at odds with each other. In fact, were often trying to kill each other. Uh, and that uh, a united front is, is not just some 
casual slogan. It's actually something that takes work to put together. And if ever there was a time for one, this is it. A united front among the intelligentsia has not often saved republics or countries. What makes you think that things like open letters or bulwark magazines or small groups of people promoting democracy are going to make a difference when the battle is really for mass public opinion in some regards? I'll tell a story that Daniel Ellsberg used to tell. It's about Chicken Little. Uh, so Chicken Little is jumping up and down and screaming, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And somebody says to him, <laughs> what good is that going to do? <laughs> to which he says, you do what you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also I would say, I mean, obviously, yes, much more has to be done. And uh, there are many other people working on many more different kinds of efforts, obviously. And to be fair, this letter does call for political action by Congress in, in terms of strengthening the guardrails of democracy on voting and election subversion. And, and, uh, but again, it's not necessarily the case that they're going to listen to a letter signed by 45 or so, mostly professors and uh, intellectual types. So it's not sufficient, obviously. It may be necessary, if not sufficient. I do think it's not, you know, it was meaningful in the 20s and 30s in Europe, just to get back to Todd's comparison, that the intellectuals were not helpful in the effort to build mostly, I think it's fair to say, in the effort to build a, a common front against totalitarianism. And in fact, often spent most of their time debunking efforts to do that or criticizing people who were involved in doing that. At least an awful lot of powerful uh, intellectuals did that. And that probably made it harder just to do it. So I think there's a little bit of legitimizing maybe that has a spillover effect, even if it doesn't have a direct effect on obviously tens of millions of voters. It has a spillover effect on the next tier of, I don't know what you call them, people who care a little bit about intellectuals. Maybe they work on the Hill. Maybe they're, they're uh, the more politicians who read this kind of stuff and business leaders who read this kind of stuff and other kinds of civic leaders, which then has a spillover effect down. So as Todd says, you do what you can. You know, we were talking, we met briefly before we got together with you today, uh, Nathaniel. And one of the things we were talking about is this, uh, the national security officials letter that came out last week. Our letter was not the first there and there were letters before, and there will be subsequent letters. I do think that some of the language of that national security letter is very similar to the language of our letter. And it's quite possible that whoever drafted that encountered our letter. There is a kind of like, um, synergy and we do what we can. And we, we deliberately brought into our signatory group people who are like well-connected. And we've been talking a lot with, uh, you know, with Leo Casey and the AFT, which is a, a major union, which is interested in this. And, you know, even some journal editors that, are, that have substantial readerships. I drafted a letter for political scientists, for the American Political Science Association. But this goes to the general question of what can intellectuals do? In fact, a lot of us are college professors, and there are many hundreds of thousands of young people on campuses who are potential voters. And uh, our job as teachers is not to mobilize them politically. At the same time, our, in our academic, disciplinary, and pedagogical contexts, we are dealing with questions of democracy and reaching a lot of young people. So I do think that doing this intellectual work has all kinds of ramifications in a broader sense. I think we all would agree that ideas matter. What I wonder is, 
Is there a intellectual opposition to the content of this letter? Is there anybody who is worth their salt who you think is on the other side of this? Yeah. What do you see out there on the on the pro-Trump intellectual side? Besides the politicians. No, but I mean, look, that just was a conference last week of these national conservative types. I don't think highly of them, honestly. And I, even before they all got into this, I wouldn't say they were maybe the people I respected most in the conservative intellectual world, but they're not nobodies. They're not nobodies. And uh, they're published in the Wall Street Journal. Christian Muth had a piece phrasing that, who was a former head of AEI, the most prominent conservative think tank in America, headed it up for 20 years and did a good job as head of it, incidentally. It was mostly a traditional constitutionalist kind of free market conservative. I don't want to get into the personalities, I guess, but he, you know, is chosen to be part in a more qualified way than some other people of this national conservative movement to speak at their conference, to go to Hungary and speak at the conference there, in addition to the one in, I think it was Orlando last week, and to associate with people whom I regard. So he, whatever Demuth himself has said, and there've been a couple of good criticisms of his piece, I think, of his speech by Jonah Goldberg and Matt Continetti and others, uh, he's a heavyweight, you got to say, and he brings a certain credibility and he then legitimizes people who are a little further out on the spectrum of sort of accommodating a kind of, uh, I don't know, vulgarized American Carl Schmittism or whatever of Fight 93 and all that, the Claremont people. And we've spent a little, I myself just can't bear to honestly read them or engage them because I think it is mostly so second rate and so much of it is in bad faith, just kind of justifying accommodations they've made to power and popularity. But I, on the other hand, I'm grateful that other people are reading the Claremont Institute publications and engaging it because I think it is important. You can't just let it go unanswered. And these aren't people, they're not in the mainstream of American academic discourse. They're probably not in the mainstream of what we would consider to be the most important journals, but they're getting to a lot of people. And I think we see this from the 30s too. Some intellectual cover, even if it's sort of second-rate intellectual cover or disingenuous intellectual cover helps these movements a lot. I mean, exposing, I think, the arguments, again, especially for young people, as Jeff mentioned, is pretty important. Pre-pandemic, I spoke on a bunch of campuses, debated and stuff. And there is a certain attraction to, I mean, liberalism in the broad sense is, you know, has sort of had a rough time. I mean, no, it's not fashionable. People will accept that practically speaking, it's probably the best we could do, some form of liberal democracy. There hasn't been a lot of excitement around it for quite a while. Uh, the excitement's been around the critiques. There are good critique, well-meaning critiques that would improve liberal democracy in different ways, I think, or strengthen it or bolster weak parts of it, whether from the left or right. But now we veer it off into, you know, really illiberal critiques. And they have more appeal than I would like even that I fully understand, honestly, but whatever. Yes, I, so I think the, the, the short answer to your question is there's a little more, some of it's disingenuous and some of it's maybe not, not the deepest thinking ever, but there's more intellectual, it makes movements stronger if they feel even or can pretend even that they have a kind of intellectual underpinning. And I do think the Trumpy nationalism has been pretty good, actually, pretty effective. Bannon's not stupid about this either at creating a sort of, I would say, fake, but, you know, intellectual underpinning. You know, the bulwark really deserves credit for the way it's engaged some of these issues. And Laura Field and others that they publish regularly, it's critically engaging the Claremont Institute people and whose ideas I do think have some of the effect that Bill just mentioned. Bill and I and Todd agree, those people really aren't worth any salt, but they're worth worrying about a little bit and their ideas do have traction. I would say the more 
concerning phenomenon is complacency. I think, for example, most of my colleagues would embrace the language of our letter, but pretty much, you know, do nothing. I'm sorry to say. And, you know, even I'm very active on Facebook. And, you know, people are now going back to academic conferences and you see these posts like, look, my book just came out. And great. And that is good that people are, you know, that their books are coming out and that they're happy and that there's some return to normality. But I do think the greater, the, the real issue is all of the people who do kind of care a little bit, but aren't really doing very much and paying attention and might be doing more. I see that complacency in the area that I track the most closely, which is in sort of the progressive ecosystem, the funding of that. There was such a movement to stop Trump from being reelected. I'm not sure if people have come to grips with the fact that he's got a very decent chance of coming back uh, in a couple more years, unfortunately. I wonder, though, you guys say liberal democracy is in serious danger in the letter, and that is clearly what you think. Does that give him undue power or that movement undue power to be constantly acting as if it's so powerful? No, I mean, I would normally say that's a yes. I mean, in the sense that I, I fought Pat Buchanan, you know, Ron Paul, all these characters, but I never thought they fundamentally endangered liberal democracy. I thought that was important to keep the Republican Party healthy, more or less, by keeping them as far out, as far from power as possible. But look, it, it, Trumpism now controls or decisively influences one of our two major parties. So I don't, 140, was it, members of the House voted to overturn, to reject electors in January 6th. So we're beyond one person, and we are talking about one of our two parties, and that becomes a much different kettle of fish. I think it was not implausible that in 2016, 17, I was against Trump, but there were people who were willing to accommodate him and say, oh, come on. I mean, he'll, he'll be president for four years. The institutions will keep him in check. The Republican conservative establishment will take keep him in check. The Republican elected officials in Congress will keep him in check. It'll be kind of an unpleasant, wacky, uh, somewhat pernicious four years, but it will not fundamentally change anything. I don't know what the analogy would be for that. Maybe Berlusconi a little bit in Italy, but I don't know enough about Italian politics. But you know, we, we have instances of this in history, right? But his seizing of the, the party's capitulation to him and his pretty purposeful, actually, seizing of the party. And then the continuation of that after November 3rd and after January 6th, kind of amazingly, and then the intensification of it almost now, that is genuinely alarming. That, I think, is why one has to be much more large. And on the complacency thing, if I could just say a word about that, I, I very much agree. The progress, I was just at a conference, one of these, very much in the spirit of our letter. Several people mentioned the letter. I mean, very much, you know, liberals and conservatives together, some foundation types, public intellectual types, uh, some academics, some more political types. And I would say the never Trump conservatives or ex-conservatives are more alarmed than the normal liberals, you know, and they're alarmed and they're on the right side. They want to fight for democracy and voting rights and all that, but they sort of can't quite, I, I think we're just closer, honestly, and probably more horrified and more upset. And I think we see more clearly how deep the, perhaps the, the tentacles, as it were, the roots have sunk, you know, of Trump and Trumpism, which means that ripping it up is not going to be so easy. And it's not going to be without its own, you know, side effects, incidentally. It's not so easy to get this stuff put the toothpaste back in the tube or whatever metaphor you want. So, yeah, so I, but I, the complacency has been a little startling to me that people sort of, yeah, democracy is terribly endangered. Now, if I can get back to my pet 
you know, program that I think would do a lot of good. And I'm not minimizing something that would do a lot of good that's in the Building Back Better bill or that's in this place or that, or, you know, I'd like to talk about that. There are surprisingly few people who are sort of, could we just focus here for a minute at least? It doesn't have to give up everything else. There's still in all the legislation, the budget and so forth. But could we focus a little bit on like democracy here, you know? May I throw in another historical note? I've learned or felt I needed to learn a lot of history this year. Uh, For many years, I admired a historian named Robert Paxton, who recently retired at Columbia. And the reason I admired him is that I knew he played an important part in exposing the fraudulent claim in France, which was still the prevailing idea in France for decades, that Vichy France was not the real France. It was a kind of extraterrestrial uh, intrusion. And he did the research, he and collaborators had a huge effect, actually, in sweeping away this self-extenuation so that he was actually the conservative president elected in 1995, Jacques Chirac, who basically adopted this line of argument. He said, no, no, we can no longer say this wasn't the real France. This was France. France did this. So Paxton, it turned out, and I owe somebody a lot of gratitude for alerting me to this. Paxson published a book a few years ago called The Anatomy of Fascism, which I've read now very closely, and I've made the centerpiece of a course I'm teaching. It's a remarkable book. It's built on a lifetime of scholarship, emphasizes mostly, of course, Italy and Germany, but with side trips to Spain and uh, Romania and Argentina and elsewhere. While he doesn't have a master theory of fascism, I'd say he he tiptoes up to it. And so he has five stages, which fascism goes through. Uh, By the way, none of them is the production of an intellectual corpus, because he thinks fascism is not a serious intellectual movement. It's not important as an intellectual movement. It's important as an action uh, design, as an action model. So phase one, which we've been tending to obsess on, for a number of years, has to do with the, the rise of the charismatic leader, the, the formation of the paramilitaries, the uh, creation of the party, and the beginning of the propaganda apparatus, and so on. The part that really riveted my attention was stage two. And stage two is where the, the establishment folds. That's basically what happened in 1932-33 in Germany, and an equivalent thing happened in uh, and I've, as I've been wa- watching and thinking about his book and so on, I said, my God, that's just exactly what's happened here. I mean, can you spell Kevin McCarthy? You know, can you spell Mitch McConnell? I mean, look at the Republicans who just evicted Liz Cheney from the Republican Party of Wyoming. We're witnessing here, this is my term, not Paxton's, although I think he would probably subscribe to it, a moral collapse of a political institution that however one might have disliked their policies, could not imagine them throwing in their force, throwing in their prestige and their political moxie with this charlatan. In 2016, Trump uses the machinery of the Republican Party to win, which is substantial and effective after winning the nomination. He runs the general election 
on the back of the party name and as well as his own. And what's happened since then is most Republican operatives and campaigners and politicians have continued the business of normal politics as if things were the same as they were before. And it feels to me like normal politics in a two-party system, that's when you can you can elect the opposition. Like people are not so happy with Biden right now. There's a lot going on, on that's not great in the economy with COVID. He's having trouble getting out of Afghanistan cleanly, all that. That's normal stuff. But you can elect an abnormal leader through a democracy in that time, in the next election. And it, right? I was, you know, I was writing a lot about media coverage of Trump, but starting from the moment he arrived down the escalator, I guess. And I, it, it troubled me greatly, even at that time, how much a, a mainstream journalism was struggling to, to think of him as a normal politician. And in fact, there was a great reluctance, if you, if you can think back to that point, great reluctance to say, no, what he's saying here is bullshit. What he's saying here is fake. I, I remember a conversation I had at some point there with uh, uh, Jonathan Alter, who's a good liberal journalist. And uh, I was lamenting to him that journalists we know, some, sometimes personally, were you know, not rising to the occasion. He said, the guy you would pay attention to is Charlie Sykes. I said, who's Charlie Sykes? I'd never heard of him. And then he told me about Charlie Sykes interviewing Trump and telling him, if I remember correctly, that he was lying. Uh, and I thought, wow, you know, okay, thank God. There, you know, somebody out there who I learned was actually an important conservative voice in Wisconsin and later one of the founders of the Bulwark. There is at least outside the establishment of political journalism. Uh, a willingness to call spades spades, and that was uh, heartening. I would just expand on that. Bill Crystal. what he said is interesting, in part because he said it. Maybe I'm imagining this, but in our letter, the language about the Republican Party being the danger, I have the idea that, like, he, that's his. I mean, it's not that it wasn't in the original draft, but he is constantly emphasizing as are his colleagues at the Bulwark and other never-Trumpers, that this Republican Party is a danger to democracy, to the point where most of them really aren't even Republicans at all anymore. And the fact that they were once connected to this party and are so outspoken about how far it has moved to the right. It's not even to the right. It's moved to the Trump. And by the way, I just want to underscore another point which Bill also made, which really is a premise and a preoccupation of our letter, which is that it may be true that a lot of elected Republicans want to imagine that they are just doing normal politics under the rubric of Trumpism, but that's not what's happening. Not just because they are capitulating, as many of them are, but because of what's happening at the state house level, which really alarms us and why voting rights and election integrity, basically protecting elections, is so important in our letter. Because at the statehouse level, Republicans are expelling any Republicans who don't want to promote the possibility of stealing the next election. That's the real danger in 2022 
and in 2024, that at the state level, the election will be overthrown in key states. That's happening. And if that's not bad enough, I would add, we, we, the name of Steve Bannon came up earlier. I mean, Steve Bannon is not a deep thinker, but Steve Bannon is, a, is an international man of mystery. Uh, there is a fascist, if I can use the word a bit imprecisely, there's a fascist international that's come together. And it, Trump was very important, maybe I would say essential in elevating it. But Bolsonaro is an important figure in it. And Viktor Orban is an important figure in it. He was he who named a liberal democracy as a goal. So when people like Mike Pence and Tucker Carlson make their pilgrimages to Budapest to sit at his side, I mean, we could also look at uh, the polls and other uh, you know, movements throughout the former communist East Europe. We're talking about not to go to 30s about this, but we're talking about sort of a, a, a would-be axis of evil, to coin a phrase. And America's the linchpin. Do you think that the National Democrats grasp the gravity of this? I mean, there were parts of the Biden campaign where he said things that I thought indicated that he did and were of great relief to me that he did. But we didn't come out of the gate with reforms right when January 6th was just had just happened. I, I don't know if you guys read the book by Alan Lichtman that just came out about called 13 Cracks. It's, it sort of enumerates the different areas in which Trump was breaking norms, a key one being on elections. But there are they go through the, the gamut of how he was running the government. And he also puts them in, in historical context we're comparing them to things that previous presidents had done. And there's almost always an example of a previous president in the 19th century or the 20th century who had done something similar, but maybe not as egregious. I just wonder if, if the Democratic Party gets how many cracks there are, because there's so far been no real effort to remedy that and to plug them. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point. And I guess the pandemic... <laughs> You know, made it complicated. It was you had to get out of the pandemic. It was one forgets the vaccines had just been introduced when Biden became president. So the management of that rollout and the economic recovery were very top of mind, and they therefore put the democracy stuff, whether it's the election legislation or, oh, I don't know, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, who were very respected liberal and conservative uh, legal types, co-authored a book late in the fall that uh, I've worked with them a little bit on sort of publicizing subsequently on reforms to fixing decades of uh, erosion of constraints on the executive and on the president and restoring congressional oversight and authority. Uh, a lot of that's kind of not very partisan, uh, but that's basically a legislative package. Some of it can be done by executive actions. It's gone nowhere. No one's even opposed to it necessarily that much. I mean, it gives Republicans a chance to constrain Biden in certain ways. I'm not sure the legislation has even been introduced, and there's certainly been no oomph behind it from the Biden administration. So I'd, I'd give them a little bit of a excuse with the pandemic and the economic recovery being so important. But I do think if yes, if you came down from thirty thousand from Mars, or, or or historian descended upon you know looked at this, if this were a foreign country and a social scientist were looking at political scientists were looking at it, or a historian were looking at it from a future era. And say, well, they just tried to have an election stolen, huge violations of the rule of law by the president over four years, well documented and fought by a lot of us and so forth. 
and there's been no election I mean, even legislation. the electoral counting act well, no, the electoral been... Act. so finally they were, i just was on the phone with about this yesterday they finally introduced it in two weeks they had all these clever sort of tactical reasons why they would hold that one back but yeah and the whole system is obviously exposed to being somewhat Rube goldberg-like and much more susceptible to manipulation and just abuse than one thought more dependent maybe that some of us thought on individuals upholding the norms and the institutions and the barriers as opposed to them being self-executing, a long-term debate in political science. And But if you came down from Mars and sort of looked at this and said, wait a second, so there was this attempt to overturn the election on January 6th, there was a lawless presidency in many ways, really at the end, kind of incredibly so in terms of the appointments he made, what was happening at the Justice Department, what was happening at the Defense Department. And basically, apart from a few internal things that Biden has done and the fact that Biden isn't doing it, which is not nothing, and and has said he won't do it and, and won't do it. But there's been almost nothing to fix that or react to that. It is a little astonishing. It would be as if you, you know, at the end of World War II, no, everyone decided, well, let's have economic recovery before we actually address, you know, in running Germany or Japan, the actual reconstitution of the society, which again is a exaggerated comparison or analogy, obviously, but it's a little, I, I very much agree, but that, that's, the pandemic may have hurt a lot in that, though. I think people just felt, Biden felt so strongly that his job was partly to to manage that and the associated economic recovery. And then there was a kind of time for a new deal, which again, understandable and maybe even true, uh, we can debate that, but uh, and that sort of became very prominent on the progressive agenda and the democracy stuff just, just slipped back. I mean, even public education about this. Things like the bulwark, things that you guys write are part of that, but there's not a credible big national campaign to explain to people why this was out of line. And I would say, don't you think there's a bit of a counter campaign by people who are not bad people, who are not sympathetic to Trump or to liberalism, but a kind of, well, we don't want to look too alarmist, you know, could we just have a back to normalcy means ignoring the last four years, not coming to grips with it. I certainly see that among the kind of conservative establishment types who are not, you know, pro-Trump. I mean, who some of whom are pretty strongly anti-Trump, but still there's that very great wish to not really confront it, partly because you might learn some unpleasant things about conservatism over the last 10, 20, 30 years, but I don't even know if that's it really. It's more just, I don't even know what it is. It's this desire to to get back to normalcy and not to look, somehow it's become uncool to look as if you're a little bit obsessed with the threat to liberal democracy as opposed to a lot of other topics. This, this may be an excessive um, uh, abuse of the, uh, of the metaphor, but if I can throw myself back into uh, Weimar Germany again, the uh, slogan of the German Communist Party uh, during that period, that pivotal period, was not Hitler uns, after Hitler us. And I'm not meaning to say that the Democratic Party is the Communist Party. It's nothing like it. But in 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 its way, in its way, it it indulges a propensity to want to normalize the situation. By the way, I think humans have this sort of equilibrium quest. You know, it's sort of well, we know we're politicians. We've been doing this for a long time. We know what we're doing. We know the people need to be reassured about. Or, or if you get a disease, you're freaked out for the first two weeks, and then you sort of like, okay, I'm living with this disease. I mean, we've all made our accommodations to this a reality that we didn't create, but there it is. I think it's kind of an American exceptionalism side to it, too, in a bad sense, that the most interesting things that have been written by 
from within political science, I would say people who do comparative political science or study Latin America or Europe or historians like Paxton um, or others who've written uh, uh, Tim Snyder, whose field is what, really, the 40s, I guess you'd say, the war and post-war Europe. You need a certain perspective to see what's happening here and say, whoa, this is happening here. I myself come more from the American side of this, American political science side of this, but, but more of a sense of, well, it can't, I mean, deep down, a sense that it really can't happen here. It's a problem. It's bad. We need to fix a certain things, but it's not really Argentina or Hungary or whatever, Chile or Spain in the, in the 30s or, and, you know, obviously it isn't really Germany, I don't think, or, or even Italy, but, you know, France, I actually studied, I, mean, I read up a tiny bit. I really don't know that much about France in the 30s, but the weakening of the French government under illiberal assaults for the right and the left, I was still different because they were weakening it in the face of what ultimately was a foreign invasion. But the sense in which there wasn't a mobilization to the center, to the center left, even to Leon Bloom, you know, in the 30s, it was kind of a, you know, he's being sniped at by everyone. And then and the Catholic integralists, as we now would call them, have their own little, you know, agenda and the Communists, of course, have their agenda. The fascists have their agenda. And other the weirdness of what's happened is is a, is a factor. I mean, I find it in myself for years, and and I would say even now, recurrently, there I have these moments of what, what, what is, what did they just say? What did they just do? It really takes a, a lot of imaginative work to take seriously that the Republican Party has become the enabler of Donald Trump, and so on and so on. On the general American exceptionalism theme, we need to talk about race. I mean, obviously, racism is not like a, a uniquely American phenomenon. But I do think that part of what is happening that relates to American exceptionalism is the resurgence, really, of a kind of Confederate ideology, ethos, and this is closely linked to the gun culture. It's not reducible. They're not the same thing, but they're not unrelated. And the Bulwark recently had a piece about this. I mean, the fact is there's no country in the world, none, where there are this many guns around. And a lot of the people with the guns are some of the same people who are organizing on the far right. And there's a kind of toxic brew. Now, you know, all of the brouhaha about critical race theory I mean, there are a set of complicated issues here, but there's also something that's very uncomplicated, which is that on the far right, there is an effort to really fearmonger about race, about demography, and about kind of the takeover of our country by Marxist, sexo-Marxist, uh, Black Lives Matter intellectuals who want to defund the police and completely transform public education. This is a very potent set of ideas that are really distinctively American in some ways. The defense of Robert E. Lee statues, there's no country really that has an iconography of the defeated uh, lost cause. It's extraordinary and very dangerous. Yeah, I'd say I'm just on Thanos, but some of the complacency came from thinking, well, that kind of lost cause stuff was receding and and it was sort of apparently. I think one did appreciate how deep its roots were. I think that's where a lot of the best analysts of the current moment also are historians of maybe pre-Civil War, but especially I'd say Reconstruction and then of later efforts to revive the Voss cause and so forth. And I personally learned a lot from reading them, but that's not been the mainstream of American history, I think. So again, the kind of progressive assumption that 
things are getting better and the arc of history bends towards whatever, what is it bend towards? To morality, towards justice, uh, yeah, is, uh, yeah, is, can be a little misleading. And I th- again, I think it makes the alarmism look, look, but I very much agree. I mean, I was at this conference recently and someone who studies violence, mostly she mostly studied it abroad. I mean, she actually worked on this in terms of other countries where there were coups and, and uh, civil wars and stuff. And, you know, she spoke about what's happening with uh, some law enforcement agencies in the U.S., especially sheriffs, which are much less kind of controlled than police, but police as well. And then the National Guard, which is less controlled than the mainstream, than the military. And the, the signs of radicalism there, I mean, as she put it, if you went to a foreign country and saw what was happening in some aspects of that and the number of ex-military people involved in the capital thing and stuff, you start to get worried about the... Uh, national security agencies. I mean, the very terms that we use when discussing either the 30s, but also Latin America in the 80s or something, seem a little crazy to use about America, I guess, the US in 2021. And Trump had, did have, for all of his idiocy and and childishness almost, he and some of his people here, Bannon, I think is underestimated, had a sense of that. Trump knew Justice Department, Defense Department, Homeland Security, didn't pay any attention to any of the other stuff, right? Those were the agencies who wanted his loyalists in as election day approached. That's a familiar model from other countries. How do we fix the Republican Party? Right now, there's this feedback loop, right, in the primaries. People are advantaged by the Trump endorsement in most places. They're advantaged by uh, saying more outrageous things and get more donations. Is there any good ideas about how to change the dynamic? I've seen one idea about getting rid of primaries. From the standpoint of just normal politics, is there a way to fix that feedback loop? I mean, you guys, I think, know more American political history than I do. I cannot think of a case in which a political party went bonkers and then came back from the brink and got sane. I mean, uh, the Whigs collapsed because they couldn't split the difference between slavery and the absence of slavery. It's a different case. But the Whigs, at least, you know, were deeply divided. And a big chunk of the Whigs became the, the making of the new Republican Party. Bill, I mean, you, you would know more about it, I'm sure, than I. But I just don't see a scenario in which we get a new round of leadership. Kevin McCarthy is an embarrassment. McConnell is a... You don't think Chris Christie taking some swings at Trump is going to fix it? That was really strong. So one reason people like me, I think, fought within the Republican Party from 2017, pretty much to early 2020, tried to find people, Republicans to oppose them on the Hill, tried to get people to challenge them in the primary, was the sense that you can't just wish let one of the two parties go in this authoritarian, illiberal, Trumpist direction, because it's a huge loss to the country. And then you, it takes a long time to re- fix that or recover from that. But I think what happened happened, and we failed, basically. I don't admire Chris Christie at all, but if he had run against Trump in 2020 and had gotten 25% of the vote, 30% of the vote in the primary, if Liz Cheney had broken a year earlier, and again, I respect very much what she's done in the last year or so. But you know, maybe it looks, it would feel a little different that there'd be more of a predicate for opposing him on January 6th and in, in the House and the Senate on impeachment and the second impeachment and stuff. The first impeachment was key. I mean, the failure to for anyone to break then, despite plenty of evidence and an ch- opportunity, really, for people to, they all said they wanted to be liberated from Trump. Well, here is their moment to do it. Uh, anyway, so I think it's a bad situation. 
some people hope that different people provide off ramps and things gradually get better. And if Biden were to be a successful president and win, Democrats would say would win re-election, the Trump stuff would play itself out. One very interesting question I was talking to Bob Kagan about this just last week, who wrote a very good piece on all this is, how much is Trumpism dependent on Trump? It's not entirely, and clearly the, to repeat my stupid metaphor, the, the, the toothpaste out of the tube. On the other hand, History suggests that the original demagogue is awfully important. You know, these 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 populist demagogic authoritarian movements often fade some after the original demagogue leaves the scene. It splinters, there are competing people who want to be had. It gets a little less attractive. Some of the people just liked him and are attached to him and they kind of go back to, in a way to normalcy. And I, I think that's possible. But I think now we're looking at years, not at, you know, breaking it next month. We're looking at at least past 2024 of having to defeat a Republican Party that's not going to be healthy. And uh, and then there's the tactical questions where I differ with some of my friends, but I think they, they're they not crazy to say, well, maybe Christie, Youngkin, better to have them than Trumpier types. They're, they're sort of at least can imagine a post-Trump future for themselves. So maybe that's a path back. We face the choices that people in Central and East Europe faced, I think, after 89 of how much to try to, you know, uh, how much one's willing to accommodate people who didn't behave very honorably. But still, you got to, you know, it's a big country. You need some people to, to who of those types to probably ultimately govern. But anyway, short term, I do think that the confrontation of the party is necessary. Medium, long term, thinking about how to get some of these people back. But some of these institutions, it's gotten worse and worse. The churches, which I would have said two or three years ago, were an obvious place you could go. There could be a recovery from Trump and Trumpism. It's presumably, it's not very consistent with a kind of you know religious uh, attitude towards things. I mean, now the churches have been so corrupted on the right, at least, that I, I don't know how much chance of a comeback there is there either. I listened to Bill Crystal. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, when when these two guys were on um, on Lawrence O'Donnell uh, a few weeks ago. O'Donnell made a joke like, uh, I used, I missed the times when I, I used to really disagree with you, Bill Crystal. And um, I mean, Bill said it perfectly. The Republican Party now needs to be opposed and defeated. Now, this is not news to Todd and I, who have never had much affinity with that party. But the truth of the matter is, it's very, I think it's very important that the Bulwark and, and the Lincoln Project and people like Bill are saying this. They are highlighting and underscoring the extent to which it is true this party is a danger to liberal democracy now. And it's not just what's going on in Congress. It's what's going on at lower levels of the party, where most of the damage is actually being done. This is also American exceptionalism. Really? There's not a federal electoral system? Really? There's really no constitutionally grounded right to vote? It's extraordinary. We do live in a states' rights country in lots of ways. And it's at the state level where now a lot of these battles are being fought, which is why federal voting rights is so important. What's the next step for you three in your collaboration? What are you going to do subsequent to this letter? To grow. We, meet, we need people from different, as they say, walks of life. People who represent different places in the political galaxy. People who are not necessarily I'm politicians would be wonderful, but also people who are professionals of different kinds, uh, including but not limited to academics, lawyers. I mean, anybody who has a stake in an honest government. I think, you know, as we've seen during the, the Trump years, the whole public health 
world has a stake in honest government. <laughs> I mean, it's a life and death state. And I mean, I would like to see a lot of institutions stepping up and recognizing that they may not have been paying much attention to the intricacies of democratic procedure, but it actually is uh, it, it's instrumental. It's decisive for them to be able to do what they want to do, what they need to do. I mean, you ask people in the letter to come, it's, say it's time to come to the aid of the republic. What do you think people should do? Well, I think it's urgent to get the filibuster rescinded for the Freedom to Vote Act. It's urgent to make it possible for the majority to express itself. I mean, the, the, the Trump movement has availed itself of every weakness in the constitutional system, from the Electoral College to the ridiculous you know, two senators for California, two senators for Wyoming, to the possibility and reality of gerrymandering, to the non-professionalization of the voting enforcement apparatus and so on. I mean, they, I don't think it was a grand design. I don't think there was ever a meeting in a room. It's as if there was a meeting say, let's go for every weakness, every, let's, let's penetrate every weak spot. Let's take all opportunities. He just probes. That's what he does. And a lot of the probes have material. I mean, they, they, they're doing quite handily. And I think, you know, so people who agree with the letter who work in, at Facebook or at social media needs to think hard about, you know, reforming that. And I mean, I, I do think people in mainstream, in traditional businesses, there's a lot more the business community could do. Labor even, which is more obviously more sympathetic you think politically to anti-trump efforts hasn't really done a heck of a lot i can't say and churches i mean of all kinds civic associations uh, state governments I've, I've been little involved in some of the voting rights stuff at the state level and it's pretty hard on it there were a couple of times when people got all worked up in georgia te briefly texas briefly uh, they've gotten unworked up pretty quickly honestly and they have reasons and they got to get along with the state legislature and stuff if you're a huge Georgia-based business. On the other hand, they could do a little more given that democracy is at risk. So this is where if you don't have any, but this is where elements of different, of the establishment or probably more precisely different establishments and including liberal establishments, I've got to say, you need to do more to sort of mobilize against this. None of them has decisive power, but I think a little more of a common front beyond just, just intellectuals would matter. I do think among the intellectuals, there's kind of a, a, a learning process that rediscovering among conservatives, maybe the merits of, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that they thought was, you know, so democratic socialist or social democrat thinkers from the past that they kind of thought, well, they were decent people, but kind of outdated by modern capitalism and economics and stuff like that. I feel that personally, they were more perceptive about the threats of a liberalism. Maybe on the left, as I say, a little bit less sort of cheerful progressivism and a little bit more of the attitude of some of the parts of the left in the past also much more alarmed, obviously, about the fragility of liberal institutions that preserve liberty and a sense of how to talk to, how to appeal to people who are just a little more conservative in their attitudes, even if they're not really conservative with a capital C. So I think it's an intellectual task of learning sort of the left can learn from people on the right who were admirable, and there were many in the 20s and 30s and vice versa, obviously. So I don't know where that quite goes intellectually, but I, I do feel there's been a, a lot of people were left behind over the last 50 years as people chugged ahead 
both on the right and left and sort of develop new thinking, fresh thinking. There's actually a lot to be learned from uh, earlier, I would say, the 20th century. It's great to talk to you guys. It's good to see the swath of opinion together on something. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? No, that was good. That was very well done. My question, Nathaniel, is how do we win? I think you're right. Whoever said it was a all hands on deck moment, I've been hearing that for five years now. I think it's still true. I think we, we all have to do our parts. You know, I don't know the answer and we, none of us do, but uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be scared for a long time until we get over this. You know, one of the reasons why we wanted to be on your show was just to have the opportunity to talk in this way and have it, you know, disseminate. But for me, I was also really curious about your thinking about a lot of this. I mean, not only because you have your show, you're like, I think, um, digital tech savvy. We're trying to communicate ideas. You're in the business of communication. And um, what do you think? One of the things that, w that the three of us talked about and we tried to do and we still may do, like it's pretty extraordinary that the Bulwark and the New Republic cooperated in this. By the way, it was not controversial for them. That was easy. It was another easy element in this process. And we, you know, we've talked about like maybe getting those editors together. Obviously, they're different and they should be different. But there are networks and conversations about collaboration. What are your thoughts about that? As someone who's involved in having people on your show, are there people that you've had on that we should be talking to? Or that are there people that you want to put us in touch with? I'm certain that there are a bunch. and You may well know them all. I think that kind of thing I could do better with an email afterwards. There's a reason that I like to ask the questions rather than receive the questions. Yeah, let, let me think about that. And, and one thing that I always ask every guest that I've had, I'm up almost to 700, I think, um, is who else should I talk to? And I will pass to you some people that I think are doing good work. Um, that that you might be in touch with. Great, good, thanks. I have one suggestion, Nathaniel. I why don't you ask important business leaders who've made statements in recent years about taking responsibility for more than the bottom line of their corporation? Why don't you ask them what they're doing to preserve democracy? Okay. I don't have a lot of sway with them, but I'll give it a shot. I can give you some. That's a good point, though. There's someone in Wall Street was telling me this. They get a heck of a lot more pressure on environmental and sustainable stuff, which is fine, green stuff and all this climate, than they do on democracy. That was Todd, Jeff, and Bill talking about their open letter in defense of democracy. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.